Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this week. Uh, If you're able, please uh, be joining me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, but I'll ask you uh, to actually find Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, before we move to our passage here in just a few minutes. It'll be in chapter 6. Galatians 3, 2. We have this morning, as we're coming into verses 6 to 10 of Galatians 6, we have some increasingly specific points of application and action that Paul is commending to his, to his hearers. And it's worth uh, reflecting on what he has been doing as a whole in this letter. Uh, it's been said, and I, I appreciate this very much, uh, one man said this, while Paul never wearies of telling folk that they cannot win God's favor by good deeds, He equally never wearies of telling them of their duty to do good. It's very important that we get Paul right, that we treat him fairly uh, as we hold both of those emphases together. And what we're seeing as we're moving toward the end of Galatians is him being very careful to do just that, not just the one, but the other as well. Uh, Here is a letter. Uh, We've been working through this since January. This is a letter that makes very clear, doesn't it? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. This has been crystal clear, and this is why I'd have a start in chapter 3, verse 2. Now look at what he says there in verses 2 and 3. He said this, Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And of course the assumed answer is, by hearing with faith. He moves on, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So think of the two things he's emphasized right there. Verse 2, we as Christians receive the Spirit of God by hearing with faith. Verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, we are not then perfected by the flesh, nor are we to expect perfection to come by the flesh. The written law code showed us, and we recited this together as a congregation in recent weeks in our catechism, the written law showed us the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. But that law code written down was powerless itself to change our hearts. So now we live by the Spirit, and we've been for several weeks now in Paul's emphasis upon the distinction between the flesh and the spirit and life by the spirit. And the question we've been wrestling with, in particular last week and now this morning, is this, what does that mean about our moral uprightness in this life? Is it somehow irrelevant because now we are uh, living in and by the spirit? And what we've seen from Paul, of course, is the answer is absolutely not. It's not at all relevant and uh, irrelevant. In fact, it's quite the opposite of that. We've been seeing uh, here recently that the Spirit is in fact the producer, or you could say the explanation, of those good deeds in us. I can only show signs of life if I am connected to the life-giving vine of Christ. And it's the Spirit who applies Christ's redemption to us by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to him in our effectual calling. So works don't save us, but genuine faith must produce good works. 
for just that reason, because the presence of genuine faith means that God's Spirit is now an active, life-giving presence in me. The fruit must come. The fruit will come. Not in the same ways, not by the same degrees, uh, from person to person, not even in the same sort of tempo in an individual person's life. There are seasons, but it will come. I was thinking about the, some hypotheticals. This gives you maybe insight into how my mind works. Uh, but I thought this week, you know, we, we could potentially conceive of a scenario in which a true Christian does not necessarily bear out good fruit in his life. If there were a phenomenon that happened in the church where Christians spontaneously exploded, and it just happened from time to time, spontaneous explosions, we could, we could maybe theorize that there, was a, that there is a Christian who is a genuine believer but not displaying fruit, although the Spirit was truly at work and present in their life, so that finally the pressure built and that person just blew up. Maybe we could imagine uh, in a situation like that. But it'd have to be one or the other, wouldn't it? It'd have to be the, the outworking of that inevitable fruit as a result of the life that is coming into us through our connection, our union with Christ, or spontaneous explosions. And since the second of those things just does not happen, uh, I mean, you think of it as, as a pipeline with a kink in it, right, building up that pressure. Uh, but but that, that's not what happens, and thus we conclude, a Christian always bears fruit. And we've seen recently uh, the answer to the question, well, what fruit? What kind of fruit are we talking about? Well, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and things like these. This is what he has told us. Now, you can turn to our text in chapter 6, which starts in verse 6. Last week, we heard Paul characterize love of neighbor in terms of bearing one another's burdens. If you were here last week, you remember that emphasis. And he did something there um, that he's going to do again this morning as well. What he did last week in our text was he gave us a specific to start, a specific manifestation of love and burden bearing which was the gentle restoration of a brother or sister who has been snuck up on and surprised by sin. He got specific there in verse 1, but then he quickly spoke to the general truth in verse 2 that that represents, the general truth of fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing the burdens of God's people around us. Well, he does that sort of thing again this morning. In verse 6, he's going to give a very specific command and then he'll follow that up in verse 7 and following with a general truth that applies there, but it also applies throughout God's creation. So this is what we'll see. Uh, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll read from the English Standard Version. And I'll be reading Galatians 6, verses 6 to 10. Paul continues in this way. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit 
will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. The specific and the general that he's bringing to us here this morning are in that same vein with one another. The vein that Paul is bringing to the foreground in our passage this morning is the vein of generosity. Generosity. That's easy to see in some of this, especially verse 6, because he's getting quite specific. But actually, Paul is direct throughout these five verses as to speaking on the matter of generosity in general, the very practical matter of a generous living. I think it helpful to look at these verses under four headings. This is what we will will do this week and uh, and the next time in this passage. We won't finish this this morning. But here's what we're going to see. If you're taking notes, maybe this will help you. Number one, in verse six, we'll hear the specific command of generosity. Second, in verses seven and eight, Uh, the general principle behind generosity. Third, in verse 9, the danger faced by the generous. And then finally, in verse 10, we'll hear Paul's concluding exhortation based on all that he's said there. So this is where we're heading. Uh, To begin, look with me at verse 6, the specific command of generosity. And we need to do two things here. Number one, we need to understand what the command is is first, and then we need to ask the question, why is he choosing to go here at this point? So he's bringing up now this, you can tell, very practical matter uh, of support of church ministry, even in a financial way. Why does he bring that up at this point? So these are the two things that we need to do. First, let's think about the command itself. He, He begins with what I hope you'll agree with me is a clear command that churches should set aside from among them as they are able, those who will dedicate their time to studying and teaching God's word. And the church should enable him to do so by relieving him of financial burdens that would otherwise require that time of him. This is a clear and often repeated instruction in the New Testament. Paul needs to raise this exhortation in in many places as he writes to many audiences. Let's give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians 9, 14. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. When he writes to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5, 18, he actually quotes two other passages regarding this notion of churches paying their ministers. He goes to the Old Testament, quotes Deuteronomy 25. You shall not muzzle an ox while he is threshing as a truth principle from the law to apply. And interestingly, he quotes the Gospel of Luke as well. I mean, verbatim, in Luke 10, 7, the laborer deserves his wages. Paul makes reference to this uh, in 1 Timothy 5 there. This is the exact sort of thing that he's alluding to here in verse 6. The way he phrases it might seem like he's being a little bit vague. All good things. But he's really not. He's not being vague at all. He says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And you need to know that the word, single word, good things there, is a common way for them to refer to 
in essence, the financial realm, but, but more basically than that, the things necessary to live, the things necessary by which to, to live in this world. So he says, for example, uh, or the scriptures say elsewhere, Luke 1.53, speaking of the work of God, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's not filling the hungry there with gold watches or something like that. He is providing for the hungry that which was necessary to live. This is the, what's behind the idea of good things there. Luke 12, 18, the rich fool. You remember the parable of the rich fool who was going to tear down his barns and build larger ones? The rich fool said to himself, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my good things and my goods. Right? What is he planning to store in his barns? That's that which was necessary for him to go on living. Now he'll live at ease uh, because he's been able to store these goods. These, and in those two examples, you really have concepts of food in your mind. And that's, that makes sense. But of course, it's not really about food itself, is it? It's about providing the means by which to live in this physical world. Romans 15, 27, he talks about the Gentiles helping the Jerusalem church financially. And here's what he says. He says, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. You notice the emphasis on the material world there and the rightness to make provision in that way. And finally, 1 Corinthians 9.11, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? This is what he's emphasizing. It's what he brings up here in verse 6. And in reference, notice, to a specific instance. He says, this is in reference to the one who teaches the word. He says this ought to be the expectation. Now, this is not the main point of the passage, but this is something we need to take note of. It really is something, if you think about it. Here we have probably the first New Testament letter written of all of them, the very early in the writing of the New Testament. And Paul says this, and he says it like this. It is clear that the church of Jesus Christ has always been a body of people centered around the Word of God. The one who teaches the Word and the ones to whom he teaches the Word. This needs to be noticed. I don't know if you've heard something like this. I've heard this many times, even among professing Christians, who will try to diminish the priority of the Bible by saying things like this. Well, you know, there were years and years there, back in the early days, when the church didn't even have the New Testament. And, of course, what they're trying to argue is that since that's the case and the way that they're conceiving of that, that's somehow evidence that the Bible has come to occupy too high a place for us today in our faith. This is the way they try to reason. And, of course, it's true that the New Testament was being written out over a period of time, and it took several years, uh, even after that, for the church to recognize and compile the inspired New Testament text. But, my goodness, the message of Christ is woven throughout the Old Testament, too, isn't it? The, the entirety of special revelation was not complete for a time in history. 
But that's got nothing at all to do with our answer to the question, what is the ground, what's the rule of life and practice that we stand upon? For God's people, the answer has always been and will always be that we stand upon, we live upon the word of God. And here you have Paul writing before the completion of the New Testament and making clear even in the assumption that the the place that they are centered upon is the word of God that is to be teached. Okay, so there's that. It's not the main point of this passage, though. The point of verse 16 is the command toward generosity in providing financially for teachers of the church. It's very specific. You could get a bit more general and say, Uh, the obligation for church members to be providing for the ministry of the church. Now, let's ask the second question then, before we move on to the next portion here. Why does he bring this up here? Is this sort of out of the blue in the book of Galatians, for him to just bring up this concept of generosity? And it seems to me there are two things to notice about this. Number one, you're helped in answering this question if you were here with us last week. He's just spoken in verses 4 and 5 about a particular caution in the realm of bearing one another's burdens. You remember that? Each will have to bear his own load, he said in verse 5. Well, if, if the New Testament expectation is for churches to provide financially like this, this seems like a pretty good time to bring this up and make this clarification for the Galatians, this obligation. This is an other's load bearing sort of obligation. So there's the timing of this verse right after verses 4 and 5. That makes a lot of sense. But even more importantly than that, just think about the scenario that the Galatians have gone through that necessitated the writing of this letter. We've seen a lot over the last uh, number of months about the particular position and struggle and deep turmoil that the Galatians were in. If this is something that needs clarifying to the Galatians, it's quite possible. It doesn't explicitly say this, but it's quite possible that Paul sees this as one of the very tangible things to fix after this whole Galatian mess. Maybe they were living and worshiping as a body in a way that provided no one among them to study and teach the scriptures to them. And hence, they wind up susceptible to the very dangerous teaching that has come in and has done a lot of damage in this body. I mean, just remember how much Paul has gone into the Old Testament to educate these misled believers about the finer points of the Old Testament. This is is a failure in proper study and teaching of the scriptures that needed correcting. When he left them, they were doing well. Between now and then, he's expected them to grow, and instead they went backwards. Maybe their problem was they had no one there with the time and freedom to become a serious student of the Word of God on behalf of the rest of them, and in the name of shepherding them. And Paul's point in verse 6 is that to the extent that that has happened, that was the fault of the entire congregation. They should have recognized one gifted among them to teach and poured into him to allow him to be freed up, to grow himself in the handling of God's word. This is the specific arena of verse 6. Commanding generosity, but generosity of a very specific kind, 
aimed at a particular means of protecting God's flock. Those who would shepherd God's people with his word. And I think it right, before we move on, this is a proper context, I think, to say something to you. This is a great testament, as far as I can see, to the Spirit's work among us and to the wisdom that he has granted to this body over a great many number of years, that our church has been so faithfully generous in this respect. I mean, here we are. You can look around you. It's not hard to see. A church of our size, not only investing in full-time ministry of the word for the sake of our brothers and sisters, but even in recent years, providing for more than one full-time minister. It's the kind of, I mean, it's just incredible if you think about it. And it's the kind of priority that comes from the Spirit, that's true, but it is clearly a priority that can be neglected. The Galatians, I think, are testament to that. It can be neglected. And I hope that studying this letter makes clear to you the kind of protection and blessing that has come to this local body because it, you, have decided to prioritize the study and teaching of the Scriptures. You... You guard and protect your brothers and sisters, young and old, by making the decision to prioritize this. Moving on into verses 7 and 8. The second thing we see here, as Paul continues to talk about generosity, but now he's going to move to a more generalized place. So we see sort of the general principle behind generosity in verses 7 and 8. Look with me there. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It's not hard to see the point that he makes here, but I hope you're really listening to him when he says what he says here. If you're listening to him, this is... Something of a frightening point. This is sobering to us. You will reap what you sow. If somebody had to try to sum up the book of Proverbs in six words, this would not be a bad way to do it. When God created the heavens and the earth, he baked this principle into the cake. That's a truth that the book of Proverbs just reveals in a great number of life situations. We read at the end of Proverbs 1, for example, the complacency of fools destroys them, but whoever listens to wisdom will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Now, it's true in considering the whole of our lives, that's not the only wisdom literature we have in Scripture, is it? We want to take into account the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, and what they tell us about individual situations. But the principles of how God has designed his world that we find in Proverbs are true, and they hold. And what's sobering in verse 7 here of our text, then, is this assurance on Paul's part that our Heavenly Father does, in fact, govern by this rule. He is not afraid to let his children suffer when they have sown to the flesh. He's not like us, oftentimes, in other words. It's not uncommon, is it, to see uh, a young person, and it looks very differently if they're, you know, if they're four, we see that. If they're 
22, we see that, and they look differently, and there's, there's different impacts. But it is not uncommon to see a young person who has thrown off the wisdom of their parents, their Christian parents, and to see their parents having to sort of desperately chase them around, trying to protect them from their own consequences. You've seen that kind of thing. It's not uncommon. And in that whole situation, think of what the child is doing in that instance as they utterly, deliberately disregard the wisdom that would be given to them by those who love them. This brings dishonor onto their parent, doesn't it? In a very real way, that child mocks their own parents as they do these things. And all children do this at times. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Paul says quite strongly here, do not be deceived for a second. God is stronger than that, and God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It's a truth that applies to specific situations. It applies to verse 6 kind of situations. Fail to prioritize the shepherding of your brothers and sisters and just give that some time, and there will be suffering that will come. There will be consequences. But it goes beyond that specific instance as well. Charles Spurgeon spoke to this and acknowledged the presence of both. And as usual, I, I appreciate the way that he says it. He said this, I have sometimes thought that in certain churches where God's ministers have been starved, it was not very surprising that the people were starved too. But I feel sure that the apostle had a wider range than that and that these words express a general principle of sowing and reaping. And I think he's exactly right. This is a truth that applies to our entire lives. It's the reason, I mean, think about it. It's the reason that we are so foolish in the moments in our lives in which we treat sin and folly lightly. This is why we are so utterly foolish to make that judgment call. And we're very prone to this, aren't we? We're prone to think, as believers, that because we belong to God, and because of His grace, that somehow that means God has made a cosmic exception in my case. Here's what He's done in my case. He has decided to shift me into an alternate universe where people do not reap what they sow. That's what grace means. I'm living in an alternate universe. And my friends, let's be very thoughtful and clear about this. God's capacity to forgive is certainly beyond our comprehension, isn't it? And the eternal consequences of our sin is most certainly paid in full at the cross. We can even speak beyond the eternal consequences of our sin. Though couldn't we? Because of his great mercy and kindness. A long long time ago, I lost count of the number of times that he has protected me from the temporal consequences of my sin. But make no mistake, he has given us no promises to do that. And make no mistake, you do continue to live in a world in which God has baked in this principle. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You see why I call this a statement of tremendous sobriety. 
I mean, this, would, this should wake up his people. Now, there's one last thing for us to consider this morning before we turn to the Lord's table. We'll be continuing in this uh, next time. But the last thing for us to notice is how Paul moves our attention from the specific temporal realities in this principle to the eternal realities. It's just like he did back in verse 21. He said back there, uh, in reference to the works of the flesh, you can see it just above there, he said, those who do such things, those who make a practice of such things, whose life is accurately portrayed by these qualities. What did he say? Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In that same way, those whose life represents a life's work of sowing to the flesh will in the end reap corruption. And those whose life has been characterized, has come to be characterized by a sowing to the spirit, that is to say, walking in step with the spirit, responding and being alive and sensitive to his transformative power and presence in our lives, they will reach the end of the path, the end of the season, and the crop they will reap will be eternal life. The contrast helps us to understand what he meant when he said corruption. What, what exactly is he getting at and the idea of corruption? Well, if he set corruption apart from eternal life, it's very helpful for us to understand where he's going. He's talking about an eschatological experience here. He's talking about damnation. I think it suffices for us this morning to simply remember the words of our Lord in Matthew chapter 25. I'd ask you to turn there with me. Find verse 31. I'm going to read quite a bit of this. We'll read from verse 31 down to the end of verse 46. So Matthew 25. And of course, as in all such instances, the question for us is simple. Is Jesus telling the truth or is he not? He's warning us here. Is this warning worthy of a yawn or worthy of careful attention? Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. <coughs> Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say,
to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If you notice three things here, if you notice the way that their life serves on that day as evidence against them, justifying their verdict one way or the other, and if you notice the way that generosity is the matter at hand in all of that, and if you notice the quite intentional emphasis Jesus places here on the way that his people, his brothers are treated, then you are in a good place for us to finish this passage next time. Our prayer this morning is that God would bless us, his people, by finding us changed by the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we hear from you on matters like these. And we are tempted in ways that maybe are inappropriate. We are tempted to ask the question, who is sufficient for these things? Father, help us to see that you did not give us these teachings and exhortations for no reason in this life. Help us to remember that even though it is true that we are not sufficient on our own, that the whole point here is that we are never alone ever again. And that the one who is sufficient for these things is the child of God who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, living for the glory of the Son of God. Our prayer collectively this morning, Father, is that you would increase our passion for your purity, and for your people. As we turn now as one body to the communion table, Father, we ask for a spirit of joy and gratitude and celebration at the reality that these symbols before us signify. And we ask for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.